University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at UBCBR on Facebook for more information. All right, this is it. That's the last time you have to watch that. <laughs> we are wrapping up our series today in the book of Nehemiah. So take a look at Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. Over the last eight weeks, we've navigated our way through this unique Old Testament work. It's a theological narrative which tells the story of trying to make a difference in the world. We learn of one man who hears of Jerusalem's destruction. One man feeling called by God to make a difference. And so Nehemiah steps out in faith as this lowly cupbearer and is brought before the king in which the king hears and fulfills his expectations. Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem, and he doesn't just assume he knows all the problems. He actually goes and he listens to the stories of his community. He listens to the needs of people. He observes the brokenness and destruction of Jerusalem, and together they began to rebuild But we learn that they face opposition. Opposition comes from the outside, and soon that opposition raises within them into this internal form of despair and fear. But they begin to step forward and capitalize on this opportunity and begin to rebuild Jerusalem. But then we ran into the awkward stuff that happens in the book of Nehemiah, like economic injustice. And we begin to navigate how we, too, are called to see the acts of injustice in our world, in our community, the ones that we support and how we might stand against them. Nevertheless, what begins to happen in the next couple of chapters as we try to wrap up our text this morning, uh, newsflash, more opposition happens. These old foes of Sanballat and of Tobiah, not only are they angry with Nehemiah, but they begin to plot to have him murdered. You see, this is what happens when you take away someone's power, their source of unethical wealth, and their exploitation of others. They're willing to do just about anything to get it back. So the narrative, it's hard to compile it and to bring it all together, but we're going to try to do it this morning in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud, and at daybreak till noon, as his face the square before the water gate in the presence of the men and women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Skip down to verse 5. Ezra opened the book, and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, amen. They bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. 
Look down at verse 8. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people would understand what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and the teachers of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn and do not weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. If you recall from our first conversation in Nehemiah, I mentioned that the Hebrew tradition of the book of Nehemiah and Ezra is actually one book. Ezra tells of the rebuilding of the temple over a period of 20 to 30 years, while Nehemiah tells of the reconstruction of Jerusalem's fortifications. And the narrator says that all the people gathered as one man. This is a curious phrase. Essentially what he's trying to say is that the people were unified. There was a a kindred spirit that was happening in Jerusalem. So they all gathered, some 40 to 50,000. And what did they want to hear? Verse 1 states, the people wanted to hear the book of the law of Moses. This is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. First of all, we need to remember that this had to be read to the people. In this day and age, probably less than 4% of the population would have had the ability to read. And so beyond literacy reasons, there's something profoundly theological happening that we need to break down into size. First, the people desire to hear a word from God tells us that they want to be reminded of their story. Is there any better way to remind us of where we are going next than to remind us of where we have come from? Israel's story is is powerful. It reminds them of, of God's presence in their lives, of God's promises fulfilled, even when empires like Egypt and Babylon and Syria and the Persian Empire rise up and wage war. God is present. God chooses to bring the people back to restoration. And it was not because of their religiosity that they had begun to fail God, but it was because of their political and religious and societal perspectives that neglected their neighbor. The people wanted to be reminded of their stories. They wanted to be reminded that God was present in their lives. They wanted to be reminded that they are interwoven into the fabric of who God is. And so they stood up and they told them a story. As humans, we are so wonderfully different. We come from different experiences, ethnicities, sexualities, genders, and perspectives, and philosophies, and convictions. Yet I believe there is one thing we all desire, is to experience transcendence in our lives. We desire to see that there is something bigger going on in our lives and in the world Some might call this the divine. In Karen Armstrong's book, The Case for God, she writes, Religion is not something tacked on to the human condition, an optional extra exposed on to people by some sort of priest. The desire is to cultivate a sense of transcendence, maybe the defining human characteristics. You see, like the Hebrews, like those who have come before us, we are a people that desire to see great significance in our lives, that our life is making a difference, that our life is bearing some importance to others, that somehow we are connecting to something that is greater and beyond us. We are a people searching. We are a people seeking. We are a people desiring to experience transcendence or the divine. And we do not need to remind ourselves of our need for God, despite how wise and advanced we have become 
all that we have, all that we create has come from something greater than ourselves. We too, like the people, need to be reminded of God's story, of God's care for us. The second thing that we can learn is that people desire to hear a word from God. People are starving for the gospel. It was Ezra who pitched the people to read the first five books of the Bible. It was the people that demanded that they hear this word from God. Verse 3 tells us that they listened attentively. Verse 6 tells us that the people physically responded by lifting their hands, by shouting praise to God, by falling on their faces in humility. Verse 9 tells us that it declares that people were weeping as they heard this word. The people had returned from an unimaginable hell of exile. Many of these people were the integral parts of rebuilding this wall. They had faced opposition from the outside and from within, but now they needed something to make sense of all of this. They needed to hear the message of redemption. They needed, no, they were starving for the gospel. We, like the Hebrew people, can all too often fall hook, line, and sinker for the lie that we need all this other stuff in our life. That this amount of wealth, that this comfort, that this security, that these politicians, that this truth, that this will give us meaning. We, we build up our little kingdoms and worldviews around such things, not realizing that what we need, the gospel in our lives. When the gospel is spoken... Starving souls are fulfilled. Physical response happens. Tears of hope are spilled. The reformer John Calvin put it this way, The gospel is not a doctrine of the tongue, but of life. It cannot be grasped by reason or memory alone, but it is fully understand when it possesses the whole soul and penetrates the inner recesses of our heart. But what is the gospel? I was recently reading, uh, I get a daily brief of history. It kind of tells you this day in the life of, of history. And we recently just celebrated, I don't know if that's the right word, the 325th anniversary of the Salem Witch Trials. And most of us know that there was roughly about 200 people that were put on trial for accusations of, of witchcraft, resulting in about 19 people found guilty and executed. What's far less known about the trials was that weather played an integral part and the allegations that were hurled amongst the accused. You see, the sun was covered with multiple sunspots, which created a time of colder weather known as the Little Ice Age. Young girls accused of controlling the weather provided the perfect scapegoat for crop failures. Some diaries and sermons from this time have given further evidence that, that weather was one of the main causations of persecution. Unexpected cold spells dispensing fogs and sun and freezes landed under the judgment of the gavel. And most of this was perpetuated by leaders of the church. Because nothing says the grace and mercy of Jesus like blaming weather and patterns on young girls and eventually putting a noose around their neck, drawing and quartering them or burning them at the stake. But for many, this is the gospel message, a message of judgment and damnation for the wicked, both on earth and the afterlife. You see, Christianity often disperses a fog that clouds the world from seeing and hearing the gospel for what it truly is. 
More often than not, the gospel is associated with political and social stances rather than the message, ministry, and invitation of Jesus. Word association matters. In a recent poll, those surveyed said that when they hear the word Christian, these words come to mind. Anti-gay, anti-feminist, anti-environment, pro-gun, pro-war, pro-capital punishment. Most of us in this space might aghast by being associated with such terms, while others of us would be proud to be associated with such terms. Yet there is something about the gospel message preached in America that has convinced non-Jesus followers that this is what the gospel message is. In 1987, the cult classic movie, um, The Princess Bride, uh, this character Vicini constantly uses the word inconceivable. You remember this? Over and over again. And finally, Mandy Patinkin, who plays the great Inigo Montoya, finally said, you keep using that word, but I don't think it means what you think it means. So the question must be asked, what is the gospel? At a time of polarizing rightness in America and religious landscape, there is not much commonality that can be found among us in our faith tradition. It seems the answer to the above question is as divergent as the ideological perspectives of the church. In the past, after preaching a message of the social implications of Jesus healing a leprous, I had a former staff member pull me to the side and said that he would rather me preach the gospel than preach politics from the pulpit. Even when scriptures, we discovered the wandering, vibrant array of perspectives within this question. For example, Paul uses the word believing in Jesus in your heart language, but those were never uttered from the lips of Jesus. Let's not get started on Jesus proclaiming that the prostitutes and the tax collectors will inherit the kingdom of God first, but then Paul gives us this laundry list of sinners that will never enter into the kingdom. So the question remains, what is the gospel? The fascinating thing about the book of Nehemiah is that while it might predate the New Testament by 500 years, there are some subtle and profound things that this scripture begins to awaken to life to help us understand what the gospel is. It says in verse 9, Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and the teachers of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn and do not weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Verse 10, Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to the Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. I think the first thing we can learn about what the gospel is, is it transforms lives. Verse 9 and 10 declares that the people are not just moved to a subtle discomfort. It says that God was moving emotionally and physically within their lives. These are a people who suffered in exile, not because of their failed religiosity, but because of their disconnect for their quote-unquote love for God and their lack of love for their neighbor. Remember, God sent prophets generation after generation with this news of their apathy and in their indifference. It was their injustice against their neighbor that Israel entered into exile. What was their injustice? 
extortion, corrupt business practices, cheating, dishonesty, violence, and mistreatment to the poor, the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. God is saying that it's not your religious words that I care about. It is the actions of your life, and the people are brought to a place of transformation in this moment. The gospel of Jesus is not a philosophy for us to hear to. It's not some religious system and practices. It's not this compartmentalized thing that we can pick up and put down based on our socioeconomic and political perspectives. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the living and vibrant truth that works in a way into every fabric of our existence, transforming us from the inside out. We see this in the New Testament in a man named Saul who thought he knew it all and persecuted the church, yet he was told he knew nothing and was transformed into something new. The gospel is a truth that wages rebellion within our soul against our impulses to darkness and brokenness and selfishness and arrogance and hopelessness and fear and guilt and compulsion and loneliness. It is a rebellion that brings wholeness and healing, and light, and goodness, and inclusiveness. The gospel is an invitation to change our way of thinking and living. The gospel transforms lives. Every December, uh, publications start with a scat of lists. The, these are the books of the year. These are the worst movies of the year. These were the shocking celebrity breakups of the year that we need to know about. Just an FYI, the best movies of 2019, Infinity Wars, Bohemian Rhapsody, Leave No Trace, Black Panther, Solo, and A Quiet Place, in that order. But occasionally, there are some the most overused words in a year that make it into a list. 2018, these were the words. Lit, like, yoked, I can't even, Laurel or Yanni, hashtag, bruh, to be honest, But then it doesn't matter the year. There's the overused words of literally, amazing, and love. You see, the most widely quoted verse of Scripture, John 3, 16, it's like it's been said so many times that it's become so meaningless to us. It does not say that God just kind of liked the world, had a general warmth towards the world. It says that God egopason, That's the Greek word agape. It's the most profound and powerful word for love in all of Scripture. This is the love that Paul describes as patient and kind. It's a love that is not envy or arrogant or rude or self-seeking or keeping records of wrong. It's a love that bears all things, endures all things, and hopes in all things. This is the love that God graciously gives to us. John says if you are looking for a definition of God... God is love, 1 John 4, 8. It's out of God's profound and unabashed love for us that God gives to us generously grace and mercy and transformation. It's a powerful love that cannot be broken or destroyed by anything. What does Paul write in Romans 8, 35? Who will separate us from the love of Christ, the agape of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No, for I am convinced that neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ 
Jesus. This is the gospel. A gospel of transforming love. God even loves our enemies because they're actually God's children. So God's love is for all people. Democrat, Republican, and even the libertarians. The homosexual and the straight. The religious and the unorthodox. The doubter and the believer. The alcoholic and those who judge them. The crackhead and the prescription pill poppers. The high and the low class. The screw-ups and those who don't see their own flaws. The round and the super skinny, the tattooed and pierced, the drunk and the sober, the self-righteous and self-loathing, the homeless and the poor, the soccer moms and the antithesis of soccer moms, NASCAR-loving people, and people that have better things to do than watch cars take left-hand turns for five hours. The raging fundamentalist doing things in the name of God that really has nothing to do with God. God loves all of us. God's love is generous and abounding. You see, the gospel of God takes work in all parts of who we are, what we are becoming, what others have done to us, and starting the ongoing process of restoration and healing. Look back at verse 10. It says, Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some of those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. I love the depth of this narrative because the gospel is good news. The gospel is transforming our lives through God's immeasurable love for us. But the people begin to express the profound transformation of God in this powerful emotion. But the gospel work is not done. Because Nehemiah sends the people to experience the gospel as a verb. Seen through the actions of community and hospitality, the act of sharing a meal, sharing a drink, sharing a celebration and story, the gospel becomes a powerful verb. No place is more evident through the ministry of Jesus. Seen through meals and healings and conversation, Jesus put the good news of the gospel into action. Calling the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the zealots, the self-righteous religious, casting out the demons and healing the sickness, the social shifting conversations with the Gentiles and the Samaritans, the stepping over of the religious and social and political boundaries, Jesus expressed the radiant love of God in action. The gospel is not about preaching and talking about God's transforming invitation of love. The gospel is not about being right all the time and having our opinion heard. It's not about carrying ourselves in the world as if we are God's gift to humanity. The gospel is action expressed in love from God to bring about the transformation of people in the world through Jesus Christ. Jesus is this radical presence of God's love. Jesus is calling us to follow him, to live such lives. Meriwether Lewis and William Clark set out on an expedition in 1804 to explore the Louisiana Purchase. Oh, that's cool. Sorry, it really just dawned on me that I was in Louisiana talking about the Louisiana Purchase. <laughs> Squirrel. Little did they know that their, their entire expedition was built on false expectation. You see, the experts of the day believed that the terrain the men would face 
was identical to the east coast of the United States, and therefore, the men believed that there would be a water passage to the west coast. And over 300 years, explorers had been looking for this water route from the Pacific Ocean to the Mississippi River, and they believed at some point their journey would eventually lead them to this gentle slope, find a stream, and coast to the finish line of the Pacific Ocean. What they discovered was this thing called the Rocky Mountains. So they had a choice. Give up and go home, or ditch the canoes they had brought with them and traverse the mountains. So they ditched the canoes and explored 8,000 miles of uncharted, unfamiliar, and uncertain terrain. One of the men in his journal would write, upon seeing the Pacific Ocean, Ocean in view, oh the joy. This great Pacific Ocean, which has been so long anxious to see and roaring, or noises made by the waves breaking against the rocky shores may be heard distinctly. Last week I actually got to see this spot, and Cape Disappointment. You see, the context of Nehemiah echoes today. Over the course of this series, we've been talking about this drastic shift in a post-Christian world. Though there are more than 70% of Americans that claim to be Christian, between 6,000 and 10,000 churches will close their doors this year. 62% of American population identify themselves as post-Christian or nuns. This does not mean that people have abandoned their faith in Christ. It means they've abandoned the church because they see a disconnect between their spirituality and the relevancy of the church and what's happening in the world. It's a unique context we find ourselves in because we've never been here before. And so the church responds with questions. Often that questions leads to judgment. Won't these people just come back to church if they just had God in their lives? So what do we do about it? This is what we've been navigating for eight, nine weeks now. How do we deal with this post-church culture? How do we connect people who identify themselves as spiritual and not religious? How do we stay relevant in a culture which the religious landscape seems so irrelevant? And the answer is right here. It's been here all along. Is that we are called to be transformed by the gospel and take a certain gospel into an uncertain future. The gospel is about action, expressed with love from God to bring about the transformation of people in the world through Jesus Christ. You and I are called individually to take the gospel of Jesus' transforming love into our families, our neighborhoods, our friendships, our workplaces, restaurants, gyms, and ball games. You and I are called together to take the gospel of Jesus' transforming love into the socio-political and economic injustice of Baton Rouge. You and I are called together to take the gospel of Jesus' transforming love into each person, whether friend or foe, political or theological opponent, comfort or awkwardness. You and I are called together to be the gospel of Jesus transforming love in real, authentic, radical, and innovative ways. The world is starving for the gospel. Let us discover together how we might be the living gospel. I'm reminded of the poetic words of Karl Cartier's song in which he writes, 
O sing ye saints of God of your redemption. Lift up the name of Jesus Christ. Sing of the cross and how he paid our ransom. His death has made a way to life. Sing the gospel. Sing salvation. Tell the people all is well. Shout the good news from the mountain, all ye thankful, go and tell. Go to the thirsty with a cup of water. Go to the hungry and give them bread. Run to the desperate and pour out his mercy till every starving soul is fed. Proclaim you servants of the King of glory, the wondrous mysteries of God. Fear not, for you are weak, but he is able to sing through you a greater song. Sing the gospel, sing salvation, tell the people all is well. Shout the good news from the mountain, all ye faithful, go and tell. Our time of response this morning.